0: Very, very good morning to all of you. We are here again. Um, We're launching into a new series. I love New Series Day. It's like my my favorite day. I I was that kid that loved going back to school. I love new projects, I love Mondays. I, don't, I know some of, you, some of you know that pastors hate Mondays um, because they're so exhausted from the weekend. No, I, I really love Mondays. I love clean slates. Um, Mandy will tell you that my favorite day in the office is new notebook day when I get a brand new notebook and I can start planning things. I, I use graph paper notebooks. One day uh, we had, Kathy Kelleher was trying to order me graph paper notebooks and she couldn't find them and I almost had a panic attack because I love my graph paper notebooks. I love new series day. It's like, I love starting new things, love jumping in. We are going to start a new series today on the Old Testament book of Daniel. And if you've ever read Daniel, ever studied this book, like we'll be doing, I think you're going to be in for a treat. It's been a lot of fun for me, as over the last couple weeks and months, I've buried my nose deep in Daniel uh, in preparation, and it's been a great endeavor. Uh, God is teaching me and showing me, as I study the scriptures, uh, things that I've never seen before. Now, some of you grew up in church, and you remember the stories of Daniel from your Sunday school teachers. Um, some of you did not grow up in church, but you'll still recognize Daniel because he's such a, a famous character in the Bible. You'll remember that this is the same Daniel who got thrown into the lion's den. That's like the classic example of the Daniel story, right? Right? The same Daniel whose friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were sent into the king's furnace for their refusal to worship a foreign god. We remember those stories pretty well. Remember maybe even the little song that we're going to dare to be a Daniel and dare to take a stand. And we, and we taught our kids these lessons, and we, we encouraged ourselves with these lessons, but you might not know that Daniel was also given a very special ability to interpret dreams. Dreams that foretold the political landscape from the Babylonians through the Romans and beyond. Daniel was given visions that foretold the deadly arrival of Antiochus Epiphanes, the terrible arrival of Antichrist, and the glorious triumph of the kingdom of the Messiah. All contained nicely packaged within 12 concise chapters. This is going to be great. This morning, as we begin, I am simultaneously excited and a little bit overwhelmed at the same time. Which is good, because I find myself in good company, because Daniel, when he finished having his visions, was scared and sick. And sometimes after you read the end of the book of Daniel, you walk away feeling scared and sick. Um, And if you had the task of teaching it, you would feel doubly scared and doubly sick, Uh, because it gets a little bit challenging as we move through the book. But as we start, I want to offer some introductory thoughts on the book of Daniel before we go into the text this morning. And one of the things that I want to highlight for us today is just the, our, our conviction on the historicity of the Bible, or, or what we mean by that is one of our core convictions here at Newtown Road is that we believe that the Bible is not just a collection of legends and fairy tales. It's not just a religious book. It's not just myths and fantasy. We believe that the scriptures are the reliable and the accurate unveiling and revealing of the plans and purposes of God himself. And we then believe also that the Bible is rooted in history, that this book of Daniel is no exception to what we hold true about the book of Philippians or the gospel of John. That although it's a bit fantastic at times and seems to be otherworldly at times, it was rooted in history. And what we mean by that then is that it was written by a real person. This guy Daniel lived and breathed. He was a real guy and his experiences are recorded for us. And it was penned at a real time in history. A terrible time in history for the Jews. The time known as the Babylonian exile or captivity. And it was written with a specific purpose. To bring a great message of hope to real people. Specifically, people who've been struggling in exile for 70 years. The people of God who had wondered if God was still strong enough, powerful enough, faithful enough to fulfill his promises to them. So what do we know then about this, this book that we're going to get into this morning? We know it was written by Daniel the prophet during the 6th century BC. And it'll begin with some stories and details from the earlier portions of Daniel's life. And will end when he is an old man finishing some 70 years in exile. Just, just think about that for one moment. We, we read these passages of the scriptures, we skim through them, we find people being born and then the record of their death some 80 years later and in a blip, a lifetime has passed. These 12 chapters cover an entire lifetime in service to God. They were not rapid fire successive episodes, but this was the totality of this man's life and experience. Daniel was born during the twilight years of the kingdom of Judah. He was a young man, an early teenager, probably between 13 and 15 years old, when he was taken into captivity in Babylon. Just consider that for a moment. 13 to 15 years old. Now granted, kids grew up a little bit faster back then they There weren't helicopter parents in in Daniel's day. We weren't afraid to let them walk to the store and stuff like that, but they they did grow up a little bit faster, but still, 13, 14, 15 years old is a little bit young to be deported and assimilated into a new culture. taken from your home by force. He was alive then, though, during a wild time in Israel's history. He lived at least early in his life, during the reign of King Josiah, who as a young man ordered that the temple would be unsealed. Remember, his grandfather had shut up the doors. And inside, the priests had rediscovered the word of God, and there was a revival beginning to sweep through the land. Daniel's parents were around during that, even if Daniel was a young child at the time. But with, with that great swell of revival also came some of the darkest days of the kingdom. The siege and defeat of Jerusalem, the tragedy of a 70-year exile. He witnesses the end of Judah and the heartbreak of exile, but also lives during a time of intense prophetic activity. As he was a contemporary, lived around the same time as Ezekiel and Jeremiah. What we're going to see as we look through the book of Daniel is that it, it, it does kind of split nicely into two major sections. The first six chapters are stories and episodes from Daniel's life. Stories that will show God's control and his faithfulness. These are the more familiar stories that we've heard in the book of Daniel. You'll recognize them quickly. The second six chapters of the book are more prophetic. They're visions outlining the coming kingdoms of Antiochus, the coming kingdoms of Antichrist and Messiah. Those chapters get more than a little challenging for both the reader and the teacher. What are... What are the big themes that we're going to find as we open up this book and read through and study? And that's where it gets really good. Because if we can, if we can find ourselves comfortable to just handle the tension of, of confusing and difficult prophetic passages, if we can find ourselves okay with not knowing every precise detail and understanding it fully just yet, we can see in the big picture a message of hope. And a message of comfort. We see without a doubt that there is a God in heaven who exceeds the glory and the power of any earthly king. It will be abundantly clear to us. In fact, Daniel actually uses that phrase a number of times, that, that some of the things that God is doing in the book of Daniel are so that Nebuchadnezzar or the wicked king or the, the wicked people would know that there is a God in heaven. We'll see that this God of Daniel that he worships is in complete control of the nations and of his servants as well. And that he is able to use his servants and he's even able to use his enemies alike to work into reality his plans and his purposes. And we'll see that Daniel's God is the kind of God who reveals and uncovers what was previously hidden. Whether that's the thoughts of a king or the toppling of superpowers Daniel's God is able to take what is covered by a veil of darkness and confusion and bring it out into the light of understanding. And overwhelmingly, we will see what the greatest theme is the certainty of the absolute triumph of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. And in not so subtle ways, we will see the foolishness and the futility of human arrogance. Even though it sometimes feels like a, like a far-off fairy tale, we will encourage ourselves and strengthen ourselves in the hope that God's kingdom endures forever, even as we walk as exiles here. And hopefully maybe you'll see a little bit of how we can find direct application to our lives, because we find ourselves stuck between these two kingdoms, Christ came and inaugurated his kingdom, absolutely, but it's not fully felt and fully established just yet. And we're stuck in the middle. We have this deposit, the down payment of the presence of the Holy Spirit. We can sense that God's kingdom is growing and building, but it's not fully established yet. And so in many ways, we find ourselves as exiles, living in a land that is growing increasingly hostile towards us, living in a culture that continues to attempt to assimilate us into a new way of thinking, a new worldview, a new understanding of humanity and God and all things related to them. This is going to be fun. All right, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I, I, I organized my thoughts around this title today called The Stage is Set because these first seven verses really do give us the uh, foundation For the book of Daniel, and they they set the stage nicely. Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1 to verse 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word God, that you have not left us alone in this world, that you have spoken to us. Lord, we need your truth to make sense of what's happening around us. We need your truth to understand who we are and who you are. We need your truth to find what abundant life and true life really is. So God, I pray that today you would give us your truth, that you'd speak to us through the pages of the scripture. God, that we would hear your voice, that you'd give us understanding and clarity. That you'd help us to understand your sovereignty, your complete control. And that the only place that we can truly find the joy of an abundant life is by submitting ourselves to your control. Give us your presence today so that we can know you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Here we go. The backdrop. So, right here in the first verse... We have a timestamp. We're going to find out where we are in the storyline of history so we know where this book is rooted. Remember we said we believe it was written by a real person in a real time to real people for a real purpose. Well, here it is. It was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. Jehoiakim reigned from 609 to 598 B.C. And according to Babylonian records, in the late spring or summer of 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched into the region and attacked Palestine. So the beginning of our book is rooted in 605 B.C., 600 years before Christ's arrival. And now, we're also, we also get to see the, uh, the villain in our story, or well, the first few chapters anyway. Right here in the second phrase, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And now, now the major players are starting to take shape. We get a good look at the Nebuchadnezzar over the next few weeks, and we'll see the kind of king he was. But suffice it to say, he was an exceptional king. He was a major player not only in this story, but in the story of human history. One of the most powerful kings, ruling one of the most powerful kingdoms ever. Babylonian luxury and opulence is is legendary. Under his leadership, the empire of Babylon enjoyed its greatest days, and he was considered by himself and by his subjects to be a god, to be divinity. There's so much more that we could say, but but suffice it to say, this is no small thing. Okay, because let's set the stage for what it really is. The grandest king of the most sophisticated, powerful superpower of the time, comes and launches an attack on the tiny nation of Judah. The grandest earthly kingdom, a a godlike leader who believes himself to be divinity, launches an attack on the tiny people of God. This should be an easy win for him. Right? Right? And what do you think is going to happen? Well, we think what will happen is what actually happened. His siege worked. (laughs) Because Jerusalem was no match for King Nebuchadnezzar and the military machine of the Babylonian Empire. And so now the stage is set for a standoff. Not just between King Nebuchadnezzar and King Jehoiakim, but the God of King Nebuchadnezzar and the God of Jehoiakim, the God of Babylon and the God of Israel, the the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sovereign God who's been revealing himself, that God is squared off against the Babylonians and their gods. We'll continue to see this theme highlighted throughout the book, that this this face-off is happening, because in addition to being an exceptional king, King Nebuchadnezzar was also exceptionally arrogant as well. He was gifted and wise and discerning, but he was also incredibly puffed up. So what happens is the defeat of Jerusalem, that's what happens. The city of God is taken. But the words that Daniel uses here are very intentional. He says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And that word gave, some of your versions say the Lord delivered. God, Yahweh, the the, the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God handed over his king and his people to the king king Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. This is incredibly important for us as we look into this book. God was not asleep during this exchange. This didn't surprise him, it didn't alarm him, He was not absent. He wasn't dormant. He wasn't hibernating. God was present and active in the the defeat of Jerusalem. And beyond that then, we could also say that Jerusalem doesn't fall to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians because of their might and power, although that was certainly the case. Jerusalem falls to Nebuchadnezzar because of the, as of yet unclear, purposes of God himself. Because the story of the Bible over and over again is a story of God's strength and power coming upon the the weaker party and overcoming the stronger party, right? We've seen that time and time again. It wasn't the strength and the might of the Babylonians that won the day. It was that God gave them into their hand for purposes that we are not yet clear of. We'll find them later. Okay, so so there's an important point to bring up here and it's not the whole point of the book but it's a good point for us to stop at today and that is that we have a sovereign God that is the emphasis of the Hebrew name for God that's even used here. A sovereign God who is in control of even this. That a sovereign God is in control of what can only be described as a catastrophic and generational event. Even though the fall and the exile were foretold by the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, it was still seen as an event of epic proportions. And what is important for us to see as we read this passage is not only the details of what year it was and who was responsible, but it's vital for our souls that we recognize that the Lord was in control of this event an event that doubtless felt out of control and felt chaotic. But here's something that really struck me as I was studying. It wasn't chaos. It wasn't an absence of order. It wasn't an absence of plan and purpose. It wasn't chaotic. It felt chaotic, but in in actuality, it was controlled. See, God was intentionally bringing discipline and correction to King Jehoiakim and the people of Judah for their sinfulness, 2 Chronicles six five states that the king was doing, King Jehoiakim was doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you remember the passages in Isaiah? Where we, where, we, where we saw that God's justice and wrath would be poured out on the wickedness of his people? It felt chaotic, but it was actually controlled. And I want to just pause there for a moment because so many times our lives feel chaotic because we can't discern in the moment the plan, the purpose, the structure. We can't see today where this will lead in 20 years, 30, 40, 50 years, 200 years down the line through our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. We don't know how this event will have ripples throughout the region years and generations down the line. All we know is that today I feel like I'm upended I can't find my feet. I feel tossed to and fro and it feels like chaos. And what we need to know is that the God that we serve and the one we believe in, the one we have trusted for our salvation is controlled and ordered and he is sovereignly in control of every chaotically seeming detail in your life. Every one of them. Every single one. And what that means for us, then on a practical level, is every time the doctor calls us with bad news, God was in control of that event. And every broken relationship, God is in control of that event. Every financial calamity that we face as a couple, God is in control of that event. Every struggle with every prodigal, God was in control of that. And what are his purposes? I don't know. And all those people who come with you and give you like the bumper sticker Christian cliches and tell you, well, God won't give you what you can't handle and all that. Just punch them right in the throat. <laughs> because God does give you what you can't handle. And then his grace gives you something to strengthen, to strengthen you in what would otherwise overwhelm you. I don't know what his purposes are for your life. I don't know ultimately what he's trying to do. But I do know some of the big picture things. That he's conforming you more and more into the image of Jesus. And that the best way for growth is not our prosperity, but our trial and suffering. And I also know that God desires his glory to be on display in your life. And the greatest glory he showed through his own son was through the passion, through his beating through his execution and resurrection. The path to glory, we talk about this all the time, the path to glory is actually through humiliation. It's through being brought low. I don't know what God's doing, but he's not asleep at the wheel. Although it feels like to us so many times he is. So the stage is set there. And then this guy, this jerk, pilfers sacred vessels from the temple of God. The vessels of God's house, the treasure is stolen, taken by Nebuchadnezzar. These sacred, sacred vessels used in the worship of God are taken by Nebuchadnezzar to the land of Shinar. And this little detail is so good. If you read over it too quickly, you might not know where the land of Shinar is, but if you slow down a little bit, Nebuchadnezzar takes these vessels back to the land of Shinar. The word Shinar is used in other places to identify Babylon, but Genesis 11 informs us that Shinar is the site of the Tower of Babel. The location itself and the Babylonian Empire, which called the land home, reek of opposition to God. The very ground that they're occupying was the center and locus for for human rebellion against God's rule and authority, where the pride and the arrogance of mankind puffed up on display, God struck with a vengeance and scattered, confusing their language. Do you remember that story? And here we have once again, because it's a cyclical theme throughout human history, a king and an empire arises, and in the pride and the arrogance of their own hearts, they puff themselves up and they think that there's something special in the sight of this world, and God brings them low to point out that he is in complete control. And here once again, we have the kingdom of Babylon, accruing lands all over the place, just taking over everything, growing in their power, in their influence, in their might, We have Nebuchadnezzar walking on the the, the rooftop, just a couple chapters, rejoicing in his own goodness. Look at all that I've done. Can you see the showdown here? The very land itself is the place where human opposition to God's rule and authority find their greatest expression. Nebuchadnezzar takes these, these articles into his temple, the temple built for his God, and sets them there in the treasury. But he's not done yet because he doesn't just want to pilfer the holy vessels and the sacred items. He wanted more. He wants to subdue this kingdom not for today, but for generations. He wants to deal a death blow. So he takes captive the best and the brightest of their young people. The exiles. He poaches the upper echelon of the next generation. Look look in verse three and four. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom. He is grabbing the best of the best. He's taking those of the royal family whose lives were built on the legacy of leadership. He's, He's taking them. He's withdrawing them, meaning that he withdraws their influence, their skills, their abilities from this tiny nation of Judah, and he assimilates them into the Babylonian empire. It, you see, the Babylonians are making an effort not just to absorb Judah into their, their own empire. They want to dominate and assimilate it entirely. This is no haphazard step. This is very Intentional. I don't know if you, uh, how much study you've done on the on, on the World War II and what was going on with the, the Nazis in Germany. But if you if you speak, to, you know Ruth Ganong, who was um, moved here from Germany with her husband uh, in the fifties, will tell you about uh, the Hitler's Youth League and how he was doing the same thing grabbing the best of the best, the brightest, pulling them away, taking them away from their families, away from their their structure, away from all that was safe and comfortable to them, giving them a new identity, training them a new way of thinking about the world. Not trying just to affect today, but to affect generations. This is an attempt to stack the deck in Babylon with the most gifted and influential leaders around the world and to punish and rob from those other nations those gifted leaders. In in so doing, it would set the kingdom of Judah back generations. This is an attempt at Babylon's dominance. And it would be a strenuous and intense program. Babylon was the center of learning and education. They would have had to learn several languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Persian later. In addition to learning law and economics and literature and language, they would also have been forced to learn and study the religious teachings of the Babylonians, which would have included lessons in the occult and superstition. Here we have these Hebrew boys who love the Lord forced against their will to study demonic teachings. And at the close of this three-year degree program, they would, have to be, they would have to stand before the king, a dissertation of sorts. They'd have to present themselves to the king and show themselves as capable servants in his household. And the Bible says that among these, in verse six, We're Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay, so let's not miss this. These four guys are those guys. They're those kind of people. They are people either of the ruling families or families of nobility. They, They come from an influential line. They are young men, likely between the ages of 13 and 15, without blemish, of good appearance. They were strong, attractive, nothing notably um, disabling about them. They were able-bodied, strong, good-looking men. Me and Chad would never have been in that group. (laughs) We'd have been stuck. We'd be be stuck back in Judah. (laughs) Amen. They were skillful in wisdom. They were endowed with knowledge. They were bright. They were exceptionally smart young men. God had given them abilities. He'd given them understanding. He'd he'd given them knowledge. They were able to learn. They were competent or capable young men. One commentator talked about how they, they would carry themselves with confidence because what they were planning on doing with these young men was employing them as officials and leaders within the Babylonian government. They needed to be able to handle themselves well, to have good conversation, you know, to look people in the eye, to be stern. They, they, needed, they needed those intangibles too. And here they were, good looking, healthy, exceptionally intelligent young men, destined to be leaders and influencers in their world. Young men who carried themselves with confidence and showed aptitude in, to serve in the presence. And they were trained as counselors and officials. Some, some even suggest that they were eunuchs because the chief of the eunuch is the one who got them. I don't know if that's the case or not, but it's possible. And here are four teenagers. And then the Bible says they were given new names. We can't miss this. Right? The names mean something. right? We, I think if any of us have read the Old Testament, even sporadically, we realize that names are important. And it doesn't tell us unless we have a study Bible, a study Bible that outlines the shift in the names here. But these young men were given new names. Their, their Hebrew names were wonderful names. They were names that denoted a legacy of faith. They were names that reminded them of God's character and nature. Names that would encourage them over and over again. You might not know their names. Daniel. Daniel is the Hebrew equivalent of God is my judge. Interesting, isn't it? Names mean something. Daniel is the kind of guy, after we look at this book, who says, nope, no one's going to judge me but God, and I'm not going to be found unfaithful to him. His name means God is my judge. They changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect his life. Bel was a a Babylonian god. They changed his name from God is my judge to a pagan god, protect his life. And every time they called his name and every time they spoke to him, they would address him, not with his faithful Jewish name, but they would address him with this name. Hananiah, who we know as Shadrach, means Yahweh is gracious. God is gracious. They changed his name to Shadrach, meaning the command of Aku, or the moon god, at the service of the moon god. And every time they spoke to him, they would highlight this, you are subservient to our gods, you are Every time they called his name, he would be reminded of the exile. Every time they called his name, he would hear his parents' voice. Every time they called his new name, it would be one further step away from where he had been in the past. Mishael means who is what God is or who is like our God. They changed his name to Meshach, which is translated who is what Aku is, who is like the moon God that subtle difference every time. Any of you ever have a a nickname that's kind of like your name but really annoys you when they call you it? And every time they they say it, it just grates on you a little bit. Every time they called their names. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. They changed his name to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, who was like the second most powerful god in the Babylonian pantheon. These young men somewhere between 13 and 15, taken from their homes, placed in a new culture, new environment, new geography, a new program of learning. They took their names that reminded them of their identity in God's people, reminded them of God's character and nature. They gave them new names, trying to assimilate them into the Babylonian lifestyle and worldview. And that forms the foundation of this book. The conflict between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the God of the Babylonians. The conflict between these four faithful young men and whatever awaits them in the future. So it gives us a little bit of a tension to resolve next week, kind of like those old Batman television shows from the 60s, right? What will happen of our four new friends? Will they survive the exile? Will they make the grade? Tune in next time, right? We'll have to come on back next year, next week. Some of you can come back next year. We'll be in a whole new book. Uh, or you can just read the rest of chapter one if you wanted to, to jump ahead, but we'll end there today. All right, so What? What does all of that mean for us today? It was a lot of introductory material, but, but what can we draw from that? What encouragement can we find for ourselves? We are not living in the Babylonian empire. We are not being exiled. Today, I don't think anybody's gonna come barging into my house and take the best and the brightest of my family away. That would be you, Avery, for sure. I mean, I promise. I mean, <laughs> it would, you'd be number one on their list. I, I guarantee it. Drew, you'd be right there too, don't worry. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that's gonna happen. So, what is it that we're supposed to grab onto? And here are a couple of things that really stood out to me as as I was studying this week and trying to encourage myself. The first is this: the illusion of chaos is just that, it's an illusion. Just, just ponder that with, with that phrase: the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. The illusion of chaos is just that, it's an illusion. Because our trials And our suffering and even what appears to be the most chaotic events of our lives are actually controlled by a sovereign God who can raise kings and put them down, who knows the hairs on my head, who knows the days of my life, who knows with precision everything that is going to happen in my life. It's one of the clearest, most consistently revealed themes in all the Bible that our God is in control sovereignly, completely, totally. That nothing occurs in our lives that surprises him That he's able to take even the most chaotic events and even the most shameful events of our lives and still work them into his good and into his purposes and into his glory. The example of Joseph comes to mind. What his brothers intended for evil, God used for good. And it looked chaotic to Joseph, didn't it? Minding his own business, his brothers pretend, they, they first conspire to kill him. Then they speak up and say, let's not kill him. Then they throw him in a pit and they sell him to his slave traders. It sure looks chaotic. He doesn't do anything wrong. He's falsely accused. He ends up in prison again. It sure looks like chaos, but it wasn't. It was controlled. And the Lord raised him up for his purposes. To shelter the people of God through famine. To multiply them and ultimately lead them out. It looked like chaos, but it wasn't. The example of Job, it looks like chaos, it was controlled. The example of Jacob, whose foolishness, whose rebellion and his deception God even used to bring about his purposes. And the example of the life and ministry of Jesus, ultimately his passion, what appeared to be chaotic and unchecked to the disciples was actually the plan of God since before the foundation of the world. And all of that should inform our faith, Whether we turn on the news and we're unsettled by what we see, whether we get a call from our financial planner and say, hey, the markets are tanking and you're in trouble. You might want to consider a part-time job, right? When the doctor calls and gives us bad news, whatever we find in our lives that seems unsettling and chaotic, this should inform our faith that our God is in control and he works all things together for good for them who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's not abandoned us. And secondly, what, one thing that I think is important for us to recognize today is that the arrogance of man knows no bounds. We saw a little bit of that with the first few verses through the actions of Nebuchadnezzar, taking the sacred articles to the land of Shinar, the, the center of opposition to the kingdom and authority of God. And truth be told, we're going to see it over and over again for these next weeks and months. But before we dismiss this thought as just a political point or as something that only plagued ancient kings in far-off lands, we should pause and realize that we are not much Uh, Farther removed from Nebuchadnezzar. We We are similar to him. We have pursued a kingdom of our own. Deep within our own hearts, there is a spirit of autonomy and rebellion that doesn't die easy. And for many of us, God graciously pursued us in our rebellion. And through the preaching of the gospel, brought us to a place of repentance and faith. And we've seen the joy of allowing the kingdom of God to overtake and envelop that small kingdom of our own hearts. But we would be liars today if we didn't at least acknowledge what is quite difficult here. And that is, even after we have become Christians and submitted ourselves to the authority and the rule of God, we still have an arrogant streak in our heart we still have places where we want to wall off around us to say, God, you can rule and reign everywhere else, but not here, not in this place. I want this. I want to say this, think this. I want to respond this way. I want to be angry and bitter. I want to hold on to all of that. I want to comfort myself with with the substances of this world. I want to comfort myself through pornography and relationships. I want to give myself and my heart away in this space. You can have all the rest, but not right here. There is an arrogance in all of us. That old man that still lives in all of us. And we need to be reminded today that the arrogance of the human heart knows no bounds. And the only place for us to find true joy is not to exert our autonomy over the kingdom of God, but instead to hit our knees and humble ourselves and submit to his rule and his reign in all things. That's the only place we're going to find true freedom in yielding ourselves as his slaves and servants. It's the great paradox of the gospel, isn't it? The only cure is for us to humble ourselves. And thirdly today, there's a God in heaven And he's glorious and sovereign. He doesn't allow his name and his glory to be treated lightly or flippantly. And he moves in and among the kingdoms of this earth and he shows and reveals power and might. And he reveals his kingdom to them. I was reading in the Psalms the other day and it was talking about how how God displays his righteousness and his salvation among the nations. That he has not hidden his plan. He's not concealing it. He's actually unveiling and revealing it especially in these days through the person and work of Jesus and the ministry of the church. And even if it appears that for a little while his name will be blotted out, and even if it appears, like, it appears like our God is on the ropes with his back to the corner, if it appears like his people will eventually be just assimilated into this present culture, if it appears to us that there's, there's coming a time where the memory of the people of God will be just that, a distant memory, we are gonna see throughout this book and you should be encouraged today that in his, in his timing and according to his plans, God will establish a kingdom here that will ultimately overcome and overtake and dominate all the kingdoms of this earth. And our greatest joy in this life is to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to that glorious kingdom, to live as ambassadors for Christ, to share with others the joy that we found in submitting to his rule and his reign over us, to share with the other exiles how they can know peace, and truth and hope in Christ. This is gonna be a fun ride. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the themes of the scriptures. Thank you for the way that little passages like what we just read can inform us with so much. Lord, we confess, we look at our lives and we feel like they're chaotic. It's because they're out of our control. Remind us again today, God, that we're not you. That things can be out of our control, yet perfectly ordered. That they can appear chaotic to us and yet be perfectly according to your plan. Remind us again that you have such sovereign control that you can take the worst days of our lives and the worst of our shame and sinfulness, the worst of our rebellion, and still work it into a beautiful picture of grace because there's nothing that happens that escapes your watchful eye and the care of your tender hand. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that there is a God in heaven. And when we look at the world around us and we see people jockeying for power, vying for notoriety and prestige, help us to see how futile it all is. And help us to find great joy Not in in asserting our own autonomy, but in finding great joy in serving you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today, that you would continue through our study in Daniel to bring our hearts into a glad place of submission, to bring us joy as we consider the hope of the eternal kingdom of God. Help us to find joy in our submission to you. In Jesus' name, amen.